Welcome to the Overflow Podcast. We pray you are encouraged by this message. For more info, notes, or other messages, download the Overflow Church app or visit our website at overflowdfw.com. Continuing the series called Why. Everybody say Why. Why you can say it, you can hold out that why a little bit, and it'll make you sound like a Texan. Why? And uh, we we're talking. Why did Jesus come? Why did Jesus come and live and die? Why does why is Jesus alive again? Why? What was his purpose? Why did he come? And we we started talking about week one that the main reason, the primary reason that Jesus came, and we know this is from the word that was given to Joseph. He said, "You shall give his name Jesus, for he will save the people from their." Sin. So we know that the purpose that Jesus came for was to seek and to save that which was lost. We were lost in our sins. We didn't know God. We were far from God. So Jesus came on a rescue mission. And we know that, uh, that Jesus is the only one, uh, that, that could do it. Come on, because of the prophecies and the law being fulfilled, we know that he was the only one that would do it. And we know that he's the only one that did do it. So Jesus is the way because he's the only one that's provided a way to God the Father. And last week we talked about how the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through the man, Jesus Christ, that we were under an old covenant, but now we are under a new and better covenant filled with better promises. And we know that the old is gone and the new has come, that the new covenant isn't an amendment to the old covenant. No, it's a brand new covenant for a brand new relationship that we can have through God, uh, through Jesus to God the Father. So today we're going to be talking about what Jesus came to destroy. Come on, are you okay? How many know that Jesus didn't just come to just put a smile on everybody's face? He came to make some changes. He came to tear some things down. And I'm going to be sharing from several uh, passages of Scripture today. I'm going to be sharing from uh, Matthew chapter 2. Luke chapter 4 and 1 John chapter 3. Not the book of John, but, the, but 1 John, right before the book of Revelation. Uh, and what I want you to do this week is I want you to take those home and I want you to read over those scriptures because we're going to be kind of covering a, a lot of passages today, actually a lot of information. So I'm going to try to get through it. And if you help me, I'll get you out of here before 2 o'clock. Right? Okay. So one of the things about Jesus that we see in his life is that he faced a lot of opposition right? A lot of opposition. He, he faced opposition from, from the temple leaders, come on, from the religious leaders of the day. He also faced a lot of opposition from government leaders, right? Jesus faced, a lot. in fact, Jesus actually faced opposition from his greatest friends. And we see this opposition happen in the beginning when Jesus was just baby Jesus, right? We love our postcards of baby Jesus. We love this, this Jesus that's manageable, right? And so we have this, this picture of, of baby Jesus. And when we see the nativity story, when we see it in somebody's yard or on a postcard or we read it in a book, usually the picture has Joseph and Mary and Jesus and some sheep and some shepherds and an angel. And what else does it have? It has these guys we call the wise men. And these wise men were these guys from a place called Persia, which was about a two-day journey from Bethlehem. And so many times when we see that story, we say, oh, and the, the wise men brought the gifts to baby Jesus. Actually, Jesus was a toddler at the time that the wise men showed up because they saw the star when Jesus was born, and it took them two years to get there. So he, he was now toddler Jesus. Can you guys imagine, like, toddler Jesus? Like, what does that look like? I don't know, but I, I would love to see what Jesus looked like as a toddler, uh, a little two-year-old, uh, not so much baby Jesus, but probably walking, you know, working on potty training Jesus, and uh, here's Jesus, and 
And they show up. They say, we've, we've came, we followed this, this, this star. We followed it from the east. And they go to Jerusalem seeking Jesus out. Now, the ruler at that time, the king of Israel at that time, was a guy by the name of Herod the Great. Now, if you will study Herod the Great, you will see that he was an evil man. Uh, he had a lot of people killed and just, just a, a vile ruler at the time. So what happens is the wise men show up in Jerusalem seeking the born Messiah. And Herod hears about it. And immediately he thinks he's a threat. So he talks to, he thinks that because he talks to his, his crew. He's like, what's all this Messiah talk? Because he didn't, he didn't know the scriptures very well. And so, but he had people, because he is in high places, he had people come in and he said, tell me, explain to me, what does this mean? They said, well, it's Jesus. He's going to come. His kingdom will know no end. He's going to come and overthrow everything. And so this was the mindset of when Jesus showed up is that he was going to come in as a political leader. Now, he came in as king, come on, to rule hearts, and his second coming, he will come in, and he'll overthrow all the governments of the earth. But in his first coming, he just came to rule hearts. And so uh, he, comes in, he comes in, and he's, hey, Jesus is going to, you know, they're going to do this, so they start freaking out. So he got scared, and he, so he calls the magi in, or the, the wise men, and he says, listen, guys, come in here. He said, tell me about Jesus. They're like, oh, we saw a star. He said, well, what I want you to do, he said, so what are you doing? They said, well, we've come to worship him. He said, well, why don't you do this? When you find Jesus, why don't you tell me too so I can go worship him? And they're like, okay, great. So they go and they find, now I understand, we see three wise men. There were three gifts. It was probably an entourage, you know, they'd be rolling. And so here these entourage of wise men, I'm talking like, you know, probably like a hundred camels. I mean, these guys were, the reason why you say we three kings is because these guys were loaded. And so they show up to bring Jesus all these gifts and they begin to worship Jesus as a, you know, as a two-year-old Jesus. I don't know what that looked like, you know, worship, you know, worshiping the toddler Jesus. And so they show up to give these gifts to Jesus. Well, then if you remember, Herod said, hey, you need to go back and report this to me, so I can come and worship too. That wasn't his plan to worship. He was manipulating them. And so when they fell asleep that night, God showed up in a dream and he said, listen, through an angel, he said, listen, do not go back to Herod. He has a plan to kill Jesus. So it says they left and they went back to Persia another way. Now, God tells Joseph the same thing, that, that uh, this man, Herod, is about to kill Jesus. So what I want you to do is I want you to take Mary, your wife, and Jesus, toddler Jesus, and I want you to go to Egypt until Herod dies. And it says this in Matthew chapter 2, verse 16, that Herod was furious when he realized that the wise men had outwitted him. And he sent soldiers to kill all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under. So he calls this genocide, basically, of all the children in Bethlehem. Now, Bethlehem wasn't a huge city. When we read this, we think, oh, my gosh, he killed thousands of babies. Actually, it was probably more like about 15 or 20, maybe 10 to 20, uh, you know, boys under the age of two because Jesus had been born two years before that. And he called this, this again, genocide just to come in and wipe out all the babies because he didn't want his kingdom to be overthrown. How many know that Jesus wasn't coming to take Herod's throne. He was coming to get his heart. That's what, that's the throne he wanted. He wanted the throne of Herod's heart. And, um, and so we see this, that Jesus was the enemy. Come on. How many know there's only, there's really only two rulers. Listen, there's only two kingdoms. There's only two rulers. There's only two kingdoms, the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. And how many know that Herod was not functioning under the kingdom of light? He was functioning under the kingdom of 
darkness. And so what the enemy was trying to do was trying to kill out God's plan because God's plan was to destroy the works of the devil, which we'll talk about in a minute. And it, so he wanted to, to, to overthrow the plan of Jesus by having Jesus killed as, a, as an infant before his time. Are you tracking? Now listen, it's important for us to remember, beloved, that in the beginning, the, the beginning things when God does, just like with Jesus, that is when we are most vulnerable. This is when Jesus is most vulnerable, just a little baby, very vulnerable. We got to understand that, that when God first starts doing a work in our life, that the enemy will try the hardest. I believe this. The enemy will always try the hardest in the beginning. He wants you to have a rough start he, because he's afraid that if you have a good start, you'll have a good middle and you'll finish strong. So his plan is to always get you right in the beginning. In fact, if you read the the story of the sower and the seed, you guys remember that story, the story of the sower and the seed? Mark chapter four, it says there were four seeds, only one seed, listen, only one seed produced. That tells us that only 25% of the things that God does or says actually come into fruition. So we've got to be careful. And that first seed, what happened to that first seed? It says that seed fell on hard ground. It didn't produce. And then it said birds came and ate it. And when Jesus interpreted the story, he said that's the enemy coming to rob the word of God. And so when God moves, listen, beloved, it is so critical, first of all, that we have a tender heart to receive what God wants to do. But we are also aware that the enemy wants to attack. So as soon as God moves in your life, as soon as God speaks, as soon as you, man, if you get anything from the Lord, you immediately allow that thing to grow roots in your life. Immediately. Don't waste. Treat it with urgency. If God wakes you up in the middle of the night, and tells you something in a dream, you write it down right then. Don't wait till tomorrow or the next day or I'll get around to it. No, no, no. You start functioning in obedience right now with the word of God because you know that, that the early stages are the most vulnerable. In fact, I see so many people, I've seen so many people over the years, so many people in the beginning. God does a work in their heart within a couple of weeks. Where are they? What happened to that person? They like fell off the face of the planet. Oh, they kind of just went back to life the way it was. Why? The enemy robbed that seed. He robbed the move of God in that person's life. So remember, in those early stages, get rooted as soon as possible. Treat the word of God. When God reveals something to you, get those roots down deep immediately. You good? So in the beginning, Jesus faced opposition. Number two, throughout his life. Throughout his life, Jesus faced opposition. We talk about this a lot when he was in the temple, when he was teaching. Luke chapter 4, another one of those passages I want you to study this week. We see the story of Jesus being led by the Spirit of God into the desert to be tempted by the devil. Now, God wasn't doing the tempting. The devil was. But God knew that it was important for Jesus' character to be refined during, during those 40 days. So Jesus goes to the desert. He's tired. He's hungry. He's, and he's to, be, he's to be tempted by the devil. So he passes that test, those 40 days. Scripture says that angels came and ministered to him. And uh, so Jesus gets out of the desert, and then he goes into the temple, starts teaching immediately in the temple, and this is what happens. Look, they mobbed him. They didn't like what Jesus had to say, right? We always like what Jesus has to say whenever it fits our agenda, right? But a lot of times when, we, when, when Jesus says something we don't want to hear, many times we're, we either ignore it or we kind of kill it off in our mind at least, Right? We just kind of put it away. So it says this in Luke chapter 4, verse 29. It says, they mobbed him and forced him to the edge of the hill of which the town was built. Listen, beloved, do you really think that if Jesus, if, if Jesus showed up in 2018, do you think our culture would receive him? No. Of course not. 
All right. Back to it. Then they attended to push him over the cliff, but he passed through the crowd and went on his way. So they tried to kill Jesus. Look throughout the scriptures. You'll see even some of his friends betrayed him. Jesus faced opposition in the beginning, throughout his life, and then number three, through the end, near the end. Luke chapter 22, you guys remember, this is Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. He knows at the cross. He knows what he's going to have to do. He knows he's fixing to take on the sins of humanity. Come on, he's fixing to put it all on the cross. And here's Jesus in Luke chapter 22, verse 42. He says, Father, if you are willing, please take this cup of suffering away from me. Have you ever been there before? God, I don't want to do this. Will you just take it away? Here is Jesus. Get this. The son of God. The strongest man that ever lived. The more willpower than any person we've, we've ever met. More character than anybody we've ever met. Is tempted to give up his destiny. The God man Jesus before the father. Lord, I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. But Jesus gave up his will for God's want. This is what he says. Yet, I want your will to be done, not mine. See, sometimes we don't have the want. We got, we got to will the want. You got to will the want sometimes. Because sometimes we want things that aren't good for us, that aren't meant for us. But we've got to will the want. We've got to allow God's will to dominate our wants. Yet, I want your will to be done, not mine. Then an angel from heaven appeared and strengthened him. Love that. We'll get back to that in a minute. He prayed more fervently, and it was such agony of spirit that his sweat fell to the ground like great drops of blood. Jesus was in anguish. Jesus was suffering before the suffering. Jesus was was distressed in spirit. He was discouraged near the end, right before he crossed the finish line. The enemy was trying to get him to bail out on his destiny. Listen, beloved, we will all face opposition. We can't get out of it. The enemy knows that God has a plan and a destiny for our life, so he will do everything he can to stop us. He will work hard to convince us so we bail out and not endure. God is working, so is the devil. But Jesus, but Jesus came to destroy the devil's work. All the works of the devil, listen, they are rendered powerless because of the cross of Jesus Christ. Does the devil have an effect on you? Does the devil control you? Only if you're living in his kingdom. Check this out. 1 John chapter 3. Again, we've been reading from just the book of John chapter 1. This is 1 John, another book written by the apostle John chapter 3. And I want you to read the tone here. Now, Take this in from the lens that we've been going through as we've built up this series. If you haven't been here, then you can listen later. But he says this, you know that Jesus came to take away our sins, and there is no sin in him. Anyone who continues to live in him will not sin. But anyone who keeps on sinning does not know him or understand who he is. Are you listening? Dear children, beloved, (laughs) don't let anyone deceive you about this. In other words, this is important. Don't miss this. 
when people do what is right, it shows that they are righteous. Now, doing what is right doesn't make you righteous. How are you made righteous? We've been talking about this. Through faith in Jesus, through believing in in the one that God has sent. In Christ, we have the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. That's what makes us righteous. But look what it says right here. When we do what is right, it shows that they are righteous. Righteousness is revealed in your walk, even as Christ is righteous. But when people keep on sinning, it shows that they belong to the devil. That's a crisis. Because we say we believe, but we don't follow. I call that devil faith. Because in the book book of James, it says, even the demons believe and they shudder. Are you following? It shows that they are righteous, even as Christ is righteous. But when people keep on sinning, it shows that they belong to the devil, who has been sinning since the beginning. But the Son of God came to destroy the works of the devil. What's his primary work? Sin. Not just the effects of sin. The sin in your life. Not just the results of your sin. That's what we focus on. He didn't just come to deal with the results of sin. He came to get to the root issue. He came to destroy the sin in your life. Those who have been born into God's family do not make a practice. And here it is, and I'll break it down for you. Those who have been born into God's family do not make a practice of sinning because God's life is in them. One translation says because God's seed is in them. So they can't keep on sinning because they're children of God. What is it talking about? Is it talking about you're living for God, you're pursuing a relationship with God, and you screw up? No, that's not what it's talking about. It's talking about you living, practicing sin. That means that you, like someone is, like a doctor is practicing medicine, sinners practice sin, right? Sinners sin, that's what they do. Beloved, it doesn't mean that you don't ever screw up or mess up. It just means in your pursuit of Jesus, you are not justifying sin. In your pursuit of Jesus, you are not winking at your sin, making excuses for your sin. You're not practicing sin. You're practicing righteousness. And sometimes you sin. Right? That's why it says in two chapters before that, if we sin, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So now we can tell. Here we go. Well, how do you know if they're saved or not? Well, right here it tells us, well, pastor, I don't like that. Well, you don't like, this is God's word. I'm just reading the scriptures. <laughs> Verse 10, so now we can tell who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not live righteously and does not love other believers. Now, it's interesting he doesn't use the word love sinners or love the world. He actually says love other, I'll bet a lot of believers that don't love other believers. Look what the scripture says. Anyone who does not live righteously and does not, does not love other believers does not belong to God. Those are firm words. Now, I want to encourage you in this. The, the tone of 1 John 
is really a letter of encouragement. That's why he's using words like beloved, dear children, all these kind of things. He's saying, listen, I want you to know who you are. You are righteous children of God. Don't get caught up in sin. That belongs to people that belong to the devil. You belong to God. Therefore, you live righteously. You're proved righteous by the way that you live. You're not made righteous by the way that you live. You're made righteous by placing your faith in Jesus. You continue your righteousness by trusting Jesus with your life and the decisions that you make. So what are the works of the devil? If the devil is destroyed, what are his works? Well, let me, let me say this. The devil can't do anything to get in the win column. He is in the loser bracket. He'll never be in the winning bracket unless you're part of his kingdom. Right? So the enemy, listen, he can never undo the cross. The cross is permanent. One sacrifice is good enough to deal with all the sins that you or I will ever do. It's good enough. He can never undo that. He has robbed sin of its power, of its final authority. He's, Jesus has robbed that. So the enemy knows that he can't win. So what he will try to do is he will continually try to frustrate your purpose. He will continually oppose you in the beginning, in the middle, in the end. He, continue, he will. You've heard me say it tons of times. If he's not on your back, he's on your side. He is attacking you because God has a plan. And he wants to thwart that plan. So the only power, understand this, the only power that the devil has over us as the children of God is the power we give him. Well, the devil's been, and he's been running rampant in my life. The only authority that he has in your life is the authority you lend him. Because you're not in his kingdom anymore. You're not his property anymore. You don't belong to him anymore. You are a child of God. And because you are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus and a child of God, you have more power and authority than the devil does. Ephesians 4.27 says this, do not give the devil a foothold. Do not give the devil a place. Do not give him any kind of position in your life. So what are the works of the devil? Well, first of all, sin. Sin is a work of the devil, right? He's the one that said in 1 John, he's been sinning since the beginning. Why is sin such a big deal? Because sin separates us from God. And sin undermines our nature, our new nature. See, your old nature was a sin nature. Your new nature is a son nature. Come on. It's a daughter nature. It undermines your nature. When you sin, you're not supposed to do that. It violates who you are. So stop buying what the devil is, is selling. Just stop. That is, that's not your business. That's not who you are anymore. That's the problem I have with the message that says, oh, we're just sinners saved by grace. We were sinners, then we were saved by grace. Now we're sons. Now we're daughters of God. Now we're the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. That doesn't sound like a sinner to me. See, our choice, our choices reveal what kingdom is superior in our life. What carries more weight in your life? Number two, distractions. They're the little things that, that hinder our progress, our peace. 
It's the little things. They're not necessarily sinful things. They're just little irritants. It says this in Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 15. By the way, the little things matter. It says this, that it's the little foxes that spoil the vineyard. Just little foxes. They can be taken out. They can be caught easy. However, you don't catch them, so they spoil the whole vineyard. It's the little things. Distractions. Just those little things that, that keep us from focusing on Jesus. Check this out. Uh, Paul Speaking to the church, people that he had led to Jesus, he says this, For I am jealous for you, not of you, jealous for you. I mean, know that one of those is a sin, another one's a godly attribute. I'm jealous for you, not of you, with the jealousy of God himself. I promise you, I promised you as a pure bride to one husband. No other lover is just one, Christ. But I fear that somehow you, your pure and undivided devotion to Christ will be corrupted. Is your devotion to Jesus pure and undivided? Is it wholesome or is it distracted? Wholesome means whole. Is it complete? Is your devotion... No, but I'm working on it. Yes, me too. And this is God's will concerning us. But I fear that somehow your pure and undivided devotion to Christ will be corrupted just as Eve was deceived, everybody say deceived, by the cunning ways of the serpent. Clever ways of the serpent. Then he says this, verse 4, you happily, now this point and the next point are going to tie together. You happily put up with whatever anyone tells you, even if they preach a different Jesus than the one we preach. We've talked about this in this series. There's a different Jesus being preached in our culture. A Jesus that's tolerant towards sin. Jesus isn't tolerant towards sin. He's tolerant towards sinners, but not sin. He hates, he hates sin far more than any human can hate sin because he's holy. Different Jesus than the one we preach, or a different kind of spirit than the one you received, or a different kind of gospel than the one you believed. He says, what, what's happening? He's saying, because of you're distracted, it can lead to your deception. So it's important for us to be focused, that we don't allow the things that are distracting us, listen, to deceive us. Because if we entertain those distractions long enough, that's what will happen. We'll get deceived. And that's the third way that the devil functions. He functions as a deceiver. He's deceptive and manipulative. See, evil will always appear to be good. What are those that call evil, evil, and good, good? Evil will always appear to be good. It says in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 14, that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. He's cunning. He's deceptive. Ah, it's not a big deal. It's actually a good thing. It's You deserve it. You deserve to go indulge in your flesh a little bit. That sounds good. If you just take the word flesh off that, that sounds pretty good. You deserve to go and indulge. That's the devil trying to trap you, trying to deceive you, trying to manipulate you, even if it's just, even if it's just a point to get you to do something you shouldn't do. 
He just wants a little bit, of, just a little bit of control. He just wants his foot in the door. That's all he wants. He, he might not even want to destroy your whole, he does want to destroy your whole life, but he'll be happy. Listen, the devil will be happy with one distraction. With one deception, he'll be happy. Jesus will only be satisfied with undistracted devotion. <laughs> He's not mad at you. That's just, that's the goal. That's my goal. Undistracted devotion. We see Herod. When we saw this, we shared about this story about Herod. We see Herod. And the first thing that we see about Herod is he was deceived, wasn't he? He thought Jesus wanted to come and take his throne. He was deceived. Then what did he do? Then he deceived others. See, that's the way deception works. When you allow yourself to be, this is, this is why it's so important for you to equip your mind with the word of God, to know what God says, for you to be sound in your doctrine. This is why it's so important. Because if the enemy can deceive you and buy into deception, he will make you a deceiver also. Because we see that's what happens with Herod. Then he deceives the Magi. So deception and manipulation. Number four is he uses fear, anxiety, and worry. Now, it's interesting. That's, we, when we have fear, we don't classify that as sin. It is sin. Because fear is, is trusting yourself or a situation or a circumstance more than you're trusting God. Now, is God tender with our t- sin and patient with his people? Absolutely. He sure is. But don't look at fear Doubt, unbelief, anxiety, and worry is just kind of like, oh, it's not really a big deal. It's just something I'm walking through. Well, you need to walk through it already because it's plagued your life for too long. God has more for that. So fear is a way the enemy tries to just undermine our trust in God. He said, well, God's not going to take care of you. So we start freaking out. I, I, I get it, man. I struggle with anxiety a little bit. So he just comes in and manipulates us, just tries to get us to fear, just tries to worry. And this is what we do. This is what we do with fear, worry, anxiety, whatever you want to call it. It's all fear. This is what we do with it. We go, well, that's just kind of the way I'm wired. I'm a worrier. Hold up. That's the way you were. That's not who you are anymore. That's the way you were. Remember, remember you died with Christ, and now you've been resurrected, right? The life I live is, is no longer I died with Christ, Galatians. The life I live is no longer. I have been crucified with Christ. That's not who you are anymore. So instead of just saying, well, I'm just a worrier. Well, I'm just a fear. I'm just kind of prone to fear. Just kind of prone to <laughs> Just not very disciplined. You start looking in the mirror and saying, listen, I know that that's the way you were. But it's not the way you are anymore because now you're a child of God. And you're not perfect, but you're on the process. And you're trusting in Jesus. And children of God don't act that way. Children of God aren't worried about this. You know, my kids, my, my four-year-old, fear is a learned behavior. My four-year, four-year-old just turned four today. He didn't go, oh, my gosh. How are the bills going to get paid? He learned, you learn that. He's going to wake up going, oh, hope everybody likes me. Well, you learn that. You need to unlearn what you have learned. It's the way we were. That might be the way that we're wired, but that's not who I am anymore. I belong to a good God in a great kingdom. Number five. 
It's the way you were, not the way you are. Beloved, you need to start, stop making that declaration over your life. Stop saying that's the way I am to justify weakness, to justify sin. Start saying that's the way I was. Maybe that's the way you're wired, but you, you, you've been born again a second time. That's the old guy. Why are you resurrecting him? He's dead. Put that fear to death. All right, number, number five. We'll get there. Destruction. Everybody say destruction. Listen, the enemy's work is to destroy. Physical destruction, emotional destruction, spiritual destruction, mental destruction, relational dis- destruction. The enemy, how many of you know that the enemy wants to destroy your relationships? He wants to cause tension in your relationships. This is one of the greatest tensions we face in life. That is the work of the devil. We blame people, but really the only reason why people are doing that is because they're functioning under the power of the devil. I'm not saying they're possessed or they need deliverance. No, they, they do need deliverance. It might not be from demons. It might just be from their mindset. They might just need to start reading the word. They might just need to get saved. Stop imposing Christian values on people that aren't part of the right, on the same kingdom. I mean, they're sinners. They a person shouldn't be doing that. They're a sinner. How do you expect them to act? Will you change your worldview? You expect the world to be good? It's under the kingdom of darkness. Okay. Number six. Shame. Everybody say shame. By the way, sickness is of the devil. Not saying you got sin in your life because you're sick. No, no, no. Just understand that God didn't make you sick. That is stupid. No, Jesus took his stripes so you don't have to be sick. Emotionally, physical, spiritually, all that. Okay, six, shame. Everybody say shame. Now, we have this thing because we, we go, oh, I'm so ashamed of what I did. Uh, I'm under conviction. Shame and conviction are different. Conviction is what I did. Shame is who I am. So when you sin, you shouldn't feel good about it. Oh, just the love of God, I, I sinned today. <laughs> he, he ain't winking at your sin. I can promise you that. He's holy. He's not winking at sin. He covered it. He dealt with it. But he don't, think, he don't take it lightly. He's like, uh-uh, that's not who you are. Just like when my kids misbehave, I don't take it lightly. I'm like, no, that is not who you are. You don't act like that. So sometimes I rebuke them. Sometimes the Holy Spirit corrects you, rebukes you. You shouldn't feel good about it when you sin. What you should feel good about is that a God who loves you enough to send Jesus offers forgiveness for you when you sin. So when we do sin, we go to him and say, God, I need mercy. He's like, I give it to you. I love you so much. My forgiveness doesn't run out. Shame, however, has to do with who we are. I'm just a sinner. No, you're not. I'm just a bad person. No, you're not. I'm dysfunctional. No, you're not. Shame is believing a lie that God is good, but his goodness is not as powerful as our sin. Shame is believing the lie that we are not forgiven or that we are not enough. Shame is a lie. Shame is a lie. Shame is a lie. Shame off you. Shame off you. You've been believing that lie too long. You are good enough for Jesus. He died for you. You're not righteous enough for him. That's why he had died. But you are valuable enough. You are worth it. You are worthy enough for Jesus. He wanted you. Shame off you. How do we walk and live in triumph? 
I need to get through this. I know. Listen, Romans chapter 5, verse 17. For the sin of this one man, Adam, caused death to rule over many. But even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of righteousness. Sin is strong, but grace is stronger. For all who received it will live in triumph over sin. Well, it's not possible to live sinless. Live in triumph over sin and death through this one man, Jesus Christ. Is it possible? I think it's possible. Are you going to do it? Probably not, but it's possible. God wouldn't have commanded it if it wasn't possible. You're not leading you with a carrot. See, the cool thing about this kingdom is that Jesus destroyed the works of the devil. However, he allows us to partner with him to, the, to advance the destruction. So he's, he's defeated. His work is undone. But Jesus allows believers to walk in obedience and take dominion over the kingdom of darkness. We do this when we advance the gospel. We do this when we tell people about Jesus. We do this when we lay hands on sick people and they recover. We do this when we counsel people and their marriage stays together. That's how we take over the kingdom of darkness. We blow up. We partner with Jesus and we take dominion over darkness. This is how we spread light. Not just by shutting up about issues but about infusing the issues with the power of God. Romans chapter 16, verse 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Under our feet. How does he crush Satan? Under your feet. So how do we live in triumph? Number one, we stand up under temptation. We stand up under temptation. Listen, temptation proves the quality of our character. You will be tempted. No one's, when they're being tempted, just say, God has tempted me, James. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13 says, No temptation has seized you except for that which was common to man. And God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. Now, many people say, that God won't give you more than you can handle. And that's their proof text. It's talking about temptation. In fact, I think God will allow more than you can handle, so you'll go to him. Hopefully, you can't handle it. And realize that only he can handle it. That's called trust. God is faithful. We will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you can bear. I just can't stand up under the temptation. Yes, you can. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so you can stand up under it. So how do you stand up under it? Remember Jesus tempted in the, in the wilderness, in the desert? Jesus is out there. The enemy comes to him. You know what he says every single time? If you are the son of God. See, temptation is always to believe the lie about our identity. It's always that. It's really all about that. If God really loved you, God really cared about you, if God was really good, Even in the garden, did God say? Always questioning. The enemy always questions to accuse. God always questions to invite. The devil always asks questions to accuse. It's important to understand that when Jesus went through these temptations, that they were very real temptations. They were real. He was hungry. He was tired. He was alone. That's when we're most susceptible to the enemy. He is smart. He will come in. He will come in in your weakest hours. That's the way he works. So be on guard, beloved. Be ready. And make sure that your spirit is willing. Because remember, Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 26, verse 41. He says, watch and pray so you don't fall into temptation. He says, the spirit is willing, but the body is weak. So you're going to be weak sometimes in body. 
Emotionally, you're going to be weak sometimes. You better be strong in spirit so you don't give in to the tempter. Well, how do we do that? Well, we do it by standing in our identity. You know who you are. Jesus didn't go, yes, I am. (laughs) Right? But he knew who he was. If you are the son of God, if you are the son of God. See, our power is rooted in position. Power is rooted in our position. It's not because of what you do. It's because of who you are. You're powerful because you belong to God. Because you're his son. You're his daughter. Oftentimes, the greatest temptation is to believe a lie. Bill Johnson says, when you believe the lie, you empower the liar. The second way that you get out of temptation is you stand on the word of God. What are you going to stand on? You're going to stand on your emotions? Because tomorrow you might feel like giving in. I mean, how many of us have, like, done, had a really good track record for, like, months, and it just took one moment, and the next thing you know, we're back in it? You better have something to stand on more than your emotions. There's a quiet confidence when we rest in the authority of what God says, of what God says. John chapter 16, verse 33, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world, you're going to have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. What is he saying? He said, I've told you these things. What things has he told you? What things is, is in his word that you know, that you believe, that you could, whenever the enemy comes, that you can go, you know what? Greater is he that is in me, First John, than he that is in the world. You can stand on those things. You can know the word of God, and you can triumph over the enemy by knowing the word. Know who you are. Know what God's word says. The second way that we walk in victory, that we live in triumph over sin, is that we submit and resist. Now, we don't resist and then submit. The submission always has to come first. The submission always comes first, right? You submit to God. What does that mean? That means that you yield your behaviors, your thoughts, your composure, your attitude to Jesus, then resist everything contrary to Jesus. Does it look like Jesus? No. Resist it. Submit yourselves unto God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. I, I, I believe this, that as you continue to develop your resistance muscle, you submit and yield to God. I believe this. I believe in certain areas you can develop resistance where they will no longer be temptations to you. That that temptation, it's like when I, when I first got saved, like, I mean, smoking dope and, you know, getting drunk, those were like real temptations. I had to stay away from those people, like way away. Because I didn't have any resistance. You know what I'm saying? Like, I was like, I, get me out of here. Because I know if I get around that, uh-uh, it's bad news. But now, I'm like, the devil's not going to be like, hey, you want some of my devil's lettuce? I'm like, no. <laughs> I don't need any of that. It's no temptation. Why? Because I developed a resistance. You Okay. Number three, the third thing that we do, number one, is we stand up under temptation. Number two, we submit and resist. And number three, we embrace mercy moments. This will wrap up quick. When Jesus was tempted in Matthew chapter four, 
when Jesus was tempted in the, in, the, in the desert, and then when he is tempted in the garden, oh, come on, how many know you'll be tempted in the desert and in the garden? Come on, at whatever place, whatever, wherever you're at, the enemy's going to come after you. And, and so he came after him in the garden. We know that when Jesus was praying, you know, I believe that that was from the, the devil was trying to get him to yield that. It was hard. But it says this in both cases that angels came and ministered to him. See, sometimes, sometimes we've got to embrace mercy moments when it comes. Sometimes when we're going through a difficulty, through a season of testing, a season of being tempted, there'll be mercy moments. I like to call them mercy kisses because a guy told me that one time and I was like, well, it blew me away. That's exactly what it was like. It's like God came in and he's like, let me just show you my goodness. Listen, when those things happen, you embrace them. And then you're able to look at your story where it was hard. You say, you know what? I remember it was so hard, but, but God did that. I remember when God did that and how much it me- meant to me that God did that in my life when it was, so, it was the worst season of my life, but God did this, that, and that. I've seen you move, right? You move the mountain. I remember, God, when you showed up in my living room, that mercy moment. Sometimes he brings a mercy moment. We got to embrace it when it comes, and we got to em- and sometimes we just, when we, when we go to it, we got to embrace the mercy moments when we go to it. Beloved, there is always mercy available. Sometimes it comes, sometimes we go to it. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. So then, since we have a great high priest who has entered heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. This high priest of ours understands our weakness. For he faced the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. Here it is, verse 16. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. Let us come confidently with courage, with faith, with boldness. God, I need you. Right now, Lord, I need to experience your mercy. There we will receive his mercy. And we will find grace to help us when we need it the most. Mercy moments. Sometimes they come to us. Jehovah's sneaky. Boom, there it is. Sometimes we go to it. And number four, walk it out. Walk out your victory. How do you walk in freedom? One victory at a time. Just one at a time. You just need one today. You know, we watch sports sometimes. They're like, it's just one win at a time. Just one game at a time. It's a great strategy for you, beloved, because if you look at the whole picture, if you look at everything in your life that seems to be crumbling around and you, and man, you just get so overwhelmed with all the junk that's going on, and I got A, B, and C, and got all this, my kids are into that, and I'm into this, I got this at work, I got this at home, I got this at church, I got all this drama going in my life. How am I going to have victory? It's overwhelming. How do I have victory? How do I walk in victory? Just one Step at a time. How do you eat an elephant one bite at a time? How do you walk in freedom? One victory at a time. One day at a time. One day of addiction at a time. Come on. One day of right thinking and right believing at a time. One day at a time. One day at a time. One victory at a time. Walk it out.
Last verse right here. Hebrews 2.14. Because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, the Son also became flesh and blood, the incarnation. For only as a human being could he die. And only by dying could he break the power of the devil.